I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Krishnadas Pilgrim Heart Hour. In this podcast, Krishnadas shares his warm-hearted and down-to-earth path to the divine. If you are interested in supporting Krishnadas's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/kd. When you're in a place like this, you know the decibel level you can Earth. Yeah, well, well this we're, this environment, you you know, you know, yeah, you're okay. not worried about how loud you're singing or whatever. When you're in a, like an urban flat or a, a space with neighbors, you have yeah, these, yeah, yeah. Is, yeah. Is, is is the is the practice? Is, does the decibel level have anything to <laughs> to do with it? Or it or? just depends if you want to live. You know, <laughs> <laughs> if you don't want to live, just sing really loud. Your neighbors will kill you. You know. <laughs> 
Um, sure, you know, everything has to be appropriate. I, that's what I, I, don't, I don't lay my trip on anybody. People are invited in. So if I'm in an apartment building, I don't sing at the top of my lungs, which is why I like to live alone in a quiet place, so I can scream and yell and do all the stupid things I do. But uh, it doesn't mean you can't sing and chant. It doesn't have to be loud. What has to be loud is your attention. That's all. It doesn't even have to be out loud, although it helps to move your lips and to breathe and say the words out loud because it helps you pay attention. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it, of course, is that when we do this as a group and other people here, they get blessings of the name. They hear the name. And even hearing the name is a, is a, a great blessing. But in India, they understand that. Not in the West. They, don't, they think you're crazy. They call the police. So, unless you want to go to jail, quiet. You don't need to play a harmonium at you know three in the morning in an apartment building just to get off. It's all. It should be more inside. If you're in a twenty thousand seat auditorium, you got to be loud. Like in Brazil, we sing outside in this uh, yoga for peace day in the park, right? There's like 20,000 people there. And it's so loud. The, and the speakers are, we're on a stage like this, but the speakers are about 40 feet high, like a rock, rock, like a rock concert. And you go like this, and it's like, ah, I like that. Hi. Hey. Um, so recently, uh, an Indian teacher of mine who grew up in the West, she introduced to me the idea that there's essentially kind of two paths of bhakti going on in the world right now. And it's kind of this bhakti revolution, you could say almost, and it seems like that in the last five years. But um, she said, you know, there's kind of this Western path of bhakti where we tend to intellectualize um, so many things. And exactly like you're saying, we, we go inside and we find what's inside. And then she kind of dropped this bomb on me <laughs> the other day where she said, well, you know, there's that, but then there's also this more Eastern path of bhakti where we rely on the, on the guru principle and that it's not just a principle, but that there's this realized being who is alive, who is awake, who actually transfers his or her darshan to you and that transfer of grace. So both of these paths, by the way, she's saying are equally beautiful. There's no... Like, and they're not even, you know, exclusive of each mm -hmm. other. They, they mix with each other, obviously. But what she was saying that was so interesting was that this kind of this more Eastern path, relying on the guru and having known a guru that is, that is realized, it's kind of like hitting the accelerate button mm -hmm. to, um, to finding love in this unconditional state. And so I guess my question is, A, do you agree with that? And B, if you do, why or why not? You know, uh, if there is an accelerate button, that's your karma to have that. So it's not really an accelerate button. Uh, who, I don't know anybody except an enlightened being who can judge where you're really at anyway. And certainly we can't judge. And if we think we're accelerating, it looks to me that that's just another thought. It's the same as thinking you're decelerating, right? Yeah. So, uh, with all due respect to your teacher, 
if it works for her, fine. But it has to feel right to you. And as far as, was she saying that she knows a particular guru that she's talking about? That, in, in general, just, well, I mean, she was... No, let, let's hear it. She was speaking of um, Amma. Amma, okay. So, so if you feel devoted to Amma, that will certainly make you feel good. Uh, you don't, have, but it's not... To say that if you think that all the devotees of Amma are accelerated and you're not because you're not a devotee, that's, that's not accurate. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> Amma's great. She's a good guru. She does good things. She's one of the few gurus that you never hear anything bad about. When they clean out the cesspools of shit, she's the first one in there. I wouldn't get in there. But she's the first one rolling up her sleeves, shoveling shit out of these holes. So... She's a good one. There's no question about it. But that doesn't mean she's the only one, and it doesn't mean she's yours or you're hers. Everybody has their own thing going on. It's a big, life is big. So whatever works for you, you have to find that. You have to feel it's right, and then you have to follow that. Nobody can tell you. And you can't manufacture love. You know, Love either happens or it doesn't. You're either sitting alone in Starbucks, looking out the window, hoping somebody's going to come by. <laughs> or you're not. It doesn't matter. It's going to happen or not happen. You can't make it happen. It's the same with devotion. You might think Amma's great. You might think she's really beautiful. But your heart's not moved in a certain kind of way. What are you going to do? Decelerate? Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean you're decelerating. So there's no, no way of judging these things. Yeah, I, I met her and it was amazing, it was beautiful, but I did not feel that type of... First thing. time I met Amma, she gave me a really big hug and she goes, Neem Karoli Baba, Neem Karoli Baba, Neem yeah. Karoli Baba, who's my guru, right? Yeah. So. Thank you. And then I, I used to go sing for her, especially in New York when she came to New York. But <laughs> the, the fighting for stage time... To sing to her got so intense, I just said, forget about it, you know, what do I, let these people find. They were ready to kill for three minutes to sing on the stage for her, you know. So I don't need to do that, you know, I'm happy, fine. It was an offering I was making. If, if it wasn't going to be accepted, they didn't want the offering, that was fine. So it's just weird, you know, what happens around gurus. In our, my day, we would kill if somebody got between me and Maharaja, you know. I would, I would, you know. <laughs> you know, like, you know, so that's just the way it is. You can't help it because all your shit comes out. When, when, when the love button is pushed, it becomes chaos, which is why we're so scared of love, because we become so vulnerable. You know, when your heart opens that way, it, as great as it is, it's just that scary to you. I'm just really interested in your earlier influences. I'm sorry? I'm interested in your earlier influences. Earlier pre influences. Pre-Maharaji. Like, for example, I have a, a deep Jewish background. I had a choice to come between Rhythm and Jews this morning, singing with my sister, or come in here. So uh -huh. I, I do both. Uh -huh. And it works kind of nicely. Mm -hmm. But I wonder, you talk a lot about Maharaji and after, but what were your earliest influence and has it the roots you talk about? The roots. Mm, well, Do they come earlier? Or? The first thing I, the first religious spiritual stuff I got interested in was really Buddhism. 
I read this book when I was in high school that said, in Buddhism, your enlightenment is up to you. And I thought, wow, I like that. Because, you know, when you're 16, everybody's telling you what to do and what not to do. And here this was, it says, my enlightenment is up to me? That's fantastic. So I started getting interested in Buddhism at that point. And, uh, of course, we're talking about the dark ages, you know. There were no gurus, there were no teachers coming around. There was no yogis in New York. There was a couple of them, but uh, I never got the hit from any of them, especially. Uh, the first time I, I felt something which was beyond anything I had experienced was um, there's a, there was a, saint, uh, a yoga teacher named Satchidan, Swami Satchidananda in Integral Yoga in New York. And he was from the Shivananda lineage, Divine Life Society. And I had met him many times and I liked him, but I didn't get a heart kind of hit from him, but I liked him. So I went to a weekend retreat with him uh, just outside of New York City. And there was another Swami there with him who I didn't know who it was. And Satchidananda, Swami Satchidananda gave his lecture. And at the end of his lectures, he would always go, like this, right? And I'd heard him so many times that when he stopped, finished the lecture, I was waiting for that. But I had my eyes closed. I was sitting there. And, but all of a sudden, I heard, and every cell in my body was having an orgasm. Even my toes. Everything just went. It felt like somebody plugged me into an electric socket. Every part of my body, I just went, like this. And this other Swami was singing, was singing that. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know who he was, right? But it was totally blasted me out in a way that completely beyond anything I had ever experienced. This was probably in 1968, 69. Move the clock ahead, 1972. I've been in India two years with Maharaji in the temple. Most of a lot of that time. But one day, a car pulls up, and a bunch of swamis get out of the car, and they walk into the ashram, over the bridge, right into Maharaji's room, which was unusual. I mean, they didn't even, they just walked right in. And I was standing outside the room, and I heard, Shri Ram, and I went, what? That swami who sang that was named Swami Chitananda who was a great saint. He was the leader of Shivananda lineage after Shivananda. And he had, been, he had known Maharaji for many, many years. And in fact, when Shivananda left the body, Maharaji was responsible for him being promoted kind of to the head of the... He made him take, the, take over as the thing. And they had known... So he had been singing to Maharaji before I met him. So when I heard him sing that, he had already been singing to Maharaji for years before that. So I was getting the thing like this, right? That was pretty interesting. Yeah. I didn't feel, and then again, when I, and that was, I think that was, hmm, I don't know if I had met Ramdas yet at that point. I may have. 
When I met Ramdas, you know who Ramdas is? Yeah, I saw yeah. I saw one giant leap. That was my first experience. Yeah, when I met him, this is when I realized that uh, it's kind of a long story, but I went up to see him at his where he was living at his father's place in New Hampshire, and when I walked into the room where he was, without a word being spoken, I knew that whatever it was I was looking for was real. It existed. It was in the world. I could find it. This was a completely new feeling. Up to then, it was just books, you know. And books, you know, who knows? Anybody, right? There's a lot of fiction out there. It's even nonfiction is fiction a lot of times. So this was the first time that I really knew that whatever it is, it's real. That was a life-changing experience. If it wasn't that, I would have been a Buddhist monk. No question about it. And it, one time I was sitting with Maharaji, uh, and he saw, he saw my, my, one of my notebooks where we used to write out you know, stuff from other books, Dharma stuff. We, there were no computers. So he has to have writing, actually, was a thing. So he grabbed my book, and he goes through it. And I had everything in there, Sufi stuff, Buddhist stuff, Hindu stuff, Christian stuff, everything. He goes through it, and he stops at this page. He says, what's this? And I look, and I went, oh, shit, it's Buddhist. It's Buddhist prayer. And I said, it's Buddhist. And I figured, I'm in a Hindu temple, you know, with my Hindu guru, and I got this Buddhist stuff, and he wants to know what it is, and I'm going to get bashed, you know. So he said, translate some. So I couldn't, but there was an Indian guy there who translated this prayer, part of this prayer. And then Maharaji stopped and he said, Teak, right, correct. I, I looked at him like, what? Because it was this completely non-dual prayer. It was called the Song of Mahamudra, which is one of the highest Buddhist teachings. Completely non-dual. There's no, you know, no devotion, nothing like that. It's all one, blah, blah, blah. And he said, it's right. Said, what? Then he kept going through the book, right? And there was a little picture of him. And he goes, who's that? I said, Baba, it's you. Nay, Buddha. Yeah. Hi. When you first met Maharaji, were you afraid of him? <laughs> no. First of all, I met him the first time I met Ramdas, actually. That's what I felt. I like later realized that that's what I felt when I walked into the room with Ramdas, was his presence. And when you fall in love, when you, in that first like 30 seconds, or maybe if you're lucky, like a couple of days, when you fall in love, is there any fear in that moment? There's a lot of stuff. I mean, there's maybe anticipation, it might be, you know, in, but there's not. All you want to do is give yourself to that person 100%, right? And that's what it's like. Sometimes when you, when you like, feel that energy, it can, be, it, it can be a little frightening. Because you think it's coming from another human being. Or it's between you and another human being. A guru is not a human being. That's the difference. Because guru doesn't want anything. A human being that you might be attracted to wants something from you too. 
And that's where you feel the fear. Can I give that? Am I okay? Is it there? What, what, what if they don't want it? You know? But when you meet love, real love, it's not, there's no business involved. You know? It's not a relationship with a guru. Because a guru is not something else, someone else. A guru is you. A guru is your own true being, manifested in a body at that moment, if the guru is in a body. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. So it's not, it's not two things. It's one, it's that love that you are, and you recognize that. And there's no fear because it can't be taken away from you. You know, in relationships, we're always worried that the person's going to withdraw their love and affection. So we're constantly involved in giving them what they want so they won't do that. And they're doing the same thing with us. So it's work. But love is not work. Love is who you are. And when you meet love and enter into the room where love lives, it's very different. You recognize yourself. You can completely relax because you recognize yourself as being loved too. It's not about anybody else. And everybody's included in that also. So it's, it's just a different level of stuff. So how did it come that you felt depressed when Maharaj went? Because good this question. is a little... Yeah, yeah, good question, yeah. I'm a schmuck. There's no doubt about it. I got attached to his body. Right? But how comes you met him before without seeing his body? Exactly. I wonder. <laughs> That's how big a schmuck I am. Really, I felt him before I even met him. And when I met him, I recognized that. But the more time I spend with him, the more... The more attached I got to his body and watching him move and, you know, you know when you're madly in love with somebody, everything they do is like, oh, wow, you know? So it was like that all the time. And then the body went away and I really flipped out. I, I just did. I'm sorry. I can't, I can't say I didn't. <laughs> I wish I could say. I know there were other devotees who said, oh, when I, I once, when I got I called one guy I knew who was living in the mountains in Vermont alone with he and his wife living in isolation after coming back from India. And I said, you know, Maharaji left the body. And he said, oh, I thought he left the body a long time ago. <laughs> There were people like that. I wanted to kill them. Not me. I was too emotional, right? So all those emotions got... All the, you know, I was 23. It was between 23 to 26 I spent in India with him. And all the failed relationships I'd had before that, the, the really unhappy, neurotic attempts at relationships, was, all that stuff was in me. And here was the perfect lover, right? The one who loved, who was just complete love. I mean, even when he yelled at you, he yelled at you with love, you know? And you felt it. It was like, he never could get angry, even when he looked like he was angry. 
It was funny. So you were involved in this Leela, in this beautiful dance, this, this ongoing every day, what will he do today? You know, how many bananas will he hit me with today? You know, it was like every day was crazy like that, you know. And like a couple of days would go by and he wouldn't give you a piece of fruit, you know. He would throw fruit in all directions, right? People would bring big mounds of fruit and he would just go like this, you know, throw them at people and you'd be sitting right in front of them and nothing would come to you. Everybody around you had like 10 bananas and you had nothing. And then two days would go and be by and you had nothing. Three days, you're ready to kill yourself. No bananas for three days. You're ready to die right there. And you're going like this, you know, and then you turn your head to see something and then the minute you turn your head, boom, you get hit with a banana right in the heart. And you look at him and he goes, he knew. He knew everything and he played with you that way. You could kill him if you didn't love him so much. And he did it on purpose. He knew what he was doing. It was a, you know, you got to realize he knew everything. Okay? I just said that. Let's repeat that. He knew everything. He knew everything, everything I ever did, everything I ever thought. He knew what I was going to do, what I wasn't going to do. He knew everything, not just about me, about everybody. And he showed you that all the time. It was no game. It's not imagination, okay? I know it seems like it's not what you read about in the papers, but this is the reality of a real being, a real saint. They know past, present, and future. And what was worse, they love you anyway, which is unbelievable because you know what you did. You know who you are. You know all the shit you've done. But they love you and they know that too. And it's un you can't accept that. It's impossible. Almost. It takes a lot of, of opening to accept that kind of love because we judge ourselves so harshly. But these beings do not judge us. They do not judge us. We've been talking about the importance of daily practice, and I was just wondering, have you noticed any sort of subtle changes within your practice from when you started and then 20 plus years later? 20? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yes, uh, absolutely. I am a depressed person. I spend my life moping around. You know what moping around is? Okay. I actually mope around less than I used to. Big thing. Sometimes the truth is, I miss it. Sometimes I'll mope around just for fun. Like I'll walk around my house and go, oh, I feel so miserable today. Wow, this is great, you know? Oh, what should I do? I don't want to do anything today. Wow, this is time. I really miss being so unhappy. So that's the difference. And the other thing is that somehow, somehow it's become apparent that my life isn't about me. It's not so important how I feel. It's not so important what I do. It's not so important that what people think of me or even what I think of myself. It's just, it's just not such a big deal. You know? 
it's like the planet of me has lost half of its gravity, you know? So all the shit that revolved around it, about half of that shit just floated off to space because there wasn't enough gravity to hold it. You know? And that feels pretty good when I think about it, which is not often. Because I don't think about it. We spend our whole time thinking about ourselves. How are we doing now? How are we doing now? And what about now? How are we doing now? And whoa, what about now? You know? This is what we do all day. And I just noticed that those thoughts don't arise. See, because it's not like you're thinking that. that You didn't make a choice to think, now let me think about myself. How am I doing now? No, that thought arose and you went for it. So if the thoughts don't arise, they just don't arise. So over time, I notice, and you will notice, everybody would notice, that you spend less and less time in heavier negative states of mind thinking about yourself all the time. It just happens that way. You just spend less time thinking about yourself and more time full of something else. Being, presence, Ram Ram. So, eventually when, eventually those thoughts of me just don't arise anymore and then something else, you know, then you become You've recognized, not become, you've recognized your true nature because those thoughts cover it, are clouds covering the sun. And when they don't arise, the sun shines. It's not like the sun isn't shining all the time, especially here. It's just fucking cloudy around here. But over, by practice, those clouds dissipate. And you recognize this, you recognize, you see the sun again and again more often. You don't notice it because when you're sunbathing, there's nobody there to notice. You're just enjoying in a very deep way. And, and, and thoughts about it are not arising. So thoughts about it are not rising. You're not aware of the passage of time either. So there's nobody there to say, well, I've just spent 29 minutes not thinking about myself. No, that would be another thought, right? So over time and practice, all this negativity doesn't arise the same way. And when it does arise, we have this thing going on, which is letting go, letting go and remembering, remembering, remembering. And that allows the thoughts to go. Or so they say. I'm from Long Island too. Hey, where? <laughs> Garden City. Garden City? Yeah. I went to I went to Herrick's in New Hyde Park. Kidding. I wouldn't kid you. <laughs> I think we're the only ones. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, so this is my first time doing anything like this. And you came I'm, all the way from Long Island? Yeah, just for you. Just for me. <laughs> There's not that many of us here. No. Um, no, I've been in London about three years actually this weekend. Uh-huh. So I never done anything like this. I kind of fell into all of this because I started doing yoga. I feel for you. I really yeah, do. I know. <laughs> and I really started doing yoga for aesthetic reasons. And then all of a yeah, sudden I, mean, I started crying. <laughs> like, what is right. this all about? <laughs> right. And I realized that there was probably a lot more going on than I had thought originally. Mm-hmm. And then I found you in a very bizarre, it's a funny story, um, way. And I started listening to you. I found you on YouTube through 
this random story, and I don't know a lot of what's going on and a lot of what people have talked about, but you resonated with me, and I started writing down notes. Cool. That's good. <laughs> and I guess my question is twofold. One, I'm trying to make all of this habits, habitual, you know, turning off the brain and meditating. Mm -hmm. I haven't started chanting, so, you know, how do you, is, is that almost the same thing, and do you combine it? And, and secondly, you know, what do you say, say to someone like me who's starting out on this journey? Um, <laughs> this is probably the most nervous I've ever been, and I talk all the time <laughs> in sales. Um, and so, uh, anyway, that's it. <laughs> Chanting is meditation. Anytime you, any practice you do that helps you, that turns, that allows you to release your thoughts is, is a meditative practice. Chanting also adds the repetition of the name which has its own magnetism, you could say, which, the, which kind of uh, attracts the mind, attracts the attention as well, so it helps even more. You can watch your breath and, you know, stuff like that. Those are all meditative concentration practices. The, meditation is a big subject. It's not, it's a very subtle, deep subject, but you start certainly from wherever you are and you start by trying to quiet the mind, which that doesn't mean holding it down. It means begin to remember to pay attention. You start some practice going, whether it's the name or counting or watching the breath, and then you realize that you've been sitting there for half an hour and you haven't watched one breath. So you come back, that's all. And then the next, the next week it might be 29 minutes and you come back. Two years from now, it might be 15 minutes, and you come back. You never know. But the idea is, every time you come back, this is a miracle. If there's anything that you could call a miracle, it's coming back from dreamland. Because we spend our whole lives dreaming away. I call it temperature checking, what you said before. How do I feel now? I'm constantly taking my temperature. Uh -huh. right? How do I feel now? How do I feel now? Right, yeah. Temperature checking. Yep. And it's, mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought... I you really, should have been a nurse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know if you'd want to trust me with <laughs> any vital organs. Yeah. Um, but... <laughs> You're from Long Island. Maybe I trust some, you. Some, maybe some, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know, NHS here. Mm, <laughs> <but> <laughs> so... Um, yeah, no, it's a, this has been really great. So. Yeah, but asana practice is great because it involves the body and paying attention. If you don't pay attention, you fall over. So you have to pay attention. So that helps you train yourself to pay attention. But, you know, there's no hurry. Okay? Right. There's no hurry. You're not going anywhere. You're trying to get here. Exactly. <laughs> so there's no reason to run around hurrying to get here when you're already here. You just have to recognize it. So you just start doing something, just you're doing fine, you know? Anybody from Long Island is already blessed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Long Island, you know, yeah. Expressway. You know, oh, we, all exit the, 37, right? Yeah, you know, I, yeah, I used to get yeah. off at 34. 34, yeah, I know. I was just there the other day, you know. I went, I was on my way out to Lo the end of Long Island, the, the, out to uh, Amagansett, East Hampton. And uh, so I drove by my mother's house where I grew up. And it wasn't there. They had, the people who bought the house knocked it down and built a completely different house. 
that room up there where I tortured myself all those teenage years, it was gone. It was the weirdest feeling. That was those, that little house that had all that stuff. It was my parents and me yelling at each other, fighting, my sister, all this craziness. It was gone. It just didn't exist anymore. It was the weirdest feeling, I tell you. So, impermanence, everything's always changing. So, you know, enjoy. Take it easy. Be happy. Mm-hmm.